Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters here along with my co-host, Mark Meckler. Mark, it's so nice to have you back again. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here, glad to be at home, and glad to be with you on Crossroads. Good. Well, unfortunately, we have um, sort of a sad and heavy topic today because we're going to be discussing this new Respect for Marriage Act, which is not actually an act yet because it has not um, yet passed finally in the House or been signed into law. But there were really important votes this week in the U.S. Senate on this Respect for Marriage Act. And Mark, I want our listeners to know that the reason we do a program like this is because I think the mainstream media does a really bad job sometimes of actually informing us about what a bill or law or policy actually is and what it would do. You know, we hear people saying this is terrible. We hear people saying it's wonderful. And we tend to just go with our side, you know, whatever political party or interest group we typically side with. But I think it's really important for us as self-governing citizens in America to try to have a deeper understanding and a thorough understanding of what these laws that are being um, considered and passed in Congress, what they would actually do. Do you, uh, well, I know you agree. (laughs) Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately today, most of what we see in the news is more appropriately couched in with the term propaganda. I mean, it really is intended to influence our opinion one way or another. And that's right-wing news and left-wing news. Uh, You know, there's a limited amount of time. They know that they have your eyeballs and your ears, and they want you to think something in particular. So their goal is to get you to think something, not to provide you with information. And so that's why you do. You get all this bias. It's a lot of noise. (laughs) It's hard to know what to think. I also want to add, Rita, you know, you mentioned that we would sort of with a heavy heart that we're talking about this. Uh, It is really, for me, a really, really heavy heart. This has nothing to do with the respect for marriage. This is where the propaganda begins. The names that they put on bills have nothing to do with the with what the bills were actually about. The Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with reducing inflation and the Respect for Marriage Act has nothing to do with respect for marriage. To the contrary, it has to do with disrespect for marriage, the the institution, the historical institution of marriage. And I want to lay down up front my absolute, complete and total personal bias. We're going to give you as unskewed a look as we can, but I want to be really clear. I am absolutely opposed to this act. I am absolutely a believer in traditional marriage. I think that's the standard. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God ordained it, and that's what it is. And so to me, this is an affront to that, and it's very frustrating. But I also want to add, as a Christian, I love everybody. And so this, to me, my opposition to this bill has nothing to do with my personal feelings towards people who might harbor same-sex attraction or all kinds of other, whatever their gender confusion is. I love everybody. 
That doesn't mean that I love legislation that they love. I definitely don't like this piece of legislation. Yeah, well, I want to go on record, too, and say I agree with everything you just said. This isn't about our personal feelings toward individuals. This is about our beliefs about public policy and our beliefs about the foundational, sacred, God-ordained institution of marriage and what that is and the value of it and the importance of it being upheld in the way God created it because it matters. So I'm going to start just by giving a little bit of background on this bill. It was introduced back in July. It sailed through the House of Representatives without public hearings or committee meetings one day after it was introduced. And Mark, I when I read that, I was absolutely flabbergasted because, you know, for most things, it seems like all Congress does is have hearings and talk about things and talk them to death and consider them and do studies and, you know, create commissions. And it seems like typically it takes forever to get anything done. So how did this happen? And don't you see this as some sort of problem in the system that something this significant could sail through the House without public hearing committee meetings in one day? Yeah, I do think it shows a problem with the system. I think it shows a lack of seriousness about what it means to legislate in the people's house, in the House of Representatives. I think it shows that most people didn't take the time, most representatives, to really consider this bill. And I think what this is, is this is simply woke virtue signaling. And that's a very bad thing generally in society. It's especially bad when it comes to federal legislation. And I have to say, I'm really offended at the number of Republicans that participated in this scam. Yeah, absolutely. So the source that I looked at said there were 47 Republicans in the House who voted for this. And I don't know, like, Mark, do you think those Republicans just weren't paying attention? Because I know, you know, Republicans... And and even in the Republican Party platform, it talks about marriage being one man and one woman. So were they not paying attention or were they afraid of getting, you know, labeled as being a bigot or something? Why would they vote for this? I would say it was both of those things. I mean, having spent a bunch of time on the Hill, I know you have as well. When you talk to them, often they have no idea what's in the bills. They're actually looking at what they're being told or listening to what they're being told about the bill. And in this case, I would argue it's virtue signaling. So they're just they're afraid they're going to get slammed in the public for being anti-homosexual, for being anti-freedom, anti-liberty. And it is a very popular, unfortunately, culturally popular opinion right now. Uh, Homosexuality lesbianism, transgenderism. These are actually trendy things. We have social contagion going on in this country. And so I think that they're just holding their finger up in the political winds at best and determining which way they should vote. They don't really have any idea what they're doing. Yeah. And that's, we should be horrified by that. That is not um, good governance. That is not having our public officials do the job that we are sending them to do if they're just voting um, on something 
without really understanding what it is. So this week, the bill passed the Senate in a 61 to 36 vote with 12 Republicans joining Democrats to vote for it. Three senators did not vote. Um, I know we did a call to action. Convention of States did a call to action nationwide, asking our grassroots to contact these 12 Republicans to try to stop them um, from going along with it. But they went along anyway. Now, the bill does include a bipartisan amendment that ostensibly protects religious liberties. Because of that amendment, and we'll talk about whether it actually does that minutes, but because it does have that amendment, it now has to go back to the House for another vote before it can go to President Biden, who surely will sign it into law. Um, and Mark, before we started, I asked you what you thought the prospects were of stopping it in the House. And what do you think about that? Not good, right? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think it's very slim and I hate to be defeatist, but the reason is you had 47 Republicans vote for this previously. They now sort of got this get out of jail free card with this religious liberties amendment that was put on it, which uh, I think both you and I think is pretty weak. We'll talk more about that. But they can now say, oh, well, we got extra protection for conservatives, for religious folks. And so I don't think there's any chance of peeling off those 47. And you'd have to get 47 plus some Democrats because, of course, even post-election until the until everybody's sworn in in January, Democrats still control the House. So I think there's almost zero chance that this thing doesn't pass the House. Right. Well, let's just talk about the amendment briefly, and then we'll go through the whole bill and talk about what the bill does. So the amendment clarifies that the bill does not authorize the federal government to recognize polygamous marriage. So that's something, okay? And then the so-called protection for um, religious freedom is that the amendment says nonprofit religious organizations aren't required to provide services, facilities, or goods for the solemnization or celebration of a marriage. So that basically just means, well, you don't have to actually perform the marriage ceremony or, you know, maybe even Jack the Baker, you don't have to bake the cake for the wedding ceremony, right? I mean, we already kind of have that, right? So that's not a big deal. It's not the extensive protection of religious freedom that they would like to suggest it is. No, it's not. And and I don't even know, I, I would say probably doesn't protect the commercial organizations like the cake baker, right. the photographer, the videographer, because those are not social service organizations. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not nonprofits. And so I would say that for-profit businesses are going to be subjected to this and ultimately they're going to be subject, subjected to liability under this, uh, this yeah, legislation. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> so, it, so it really is almost pointless. Okay, well, let's go, let's talk about um, what the bill actually is, what it would do. And I've kind of uh, boiled it down to three things. So first, it says that the federal government will accept any state's definition of marriage for purposes of federal law. It does, because of the amendment, make an exception for polygamy. But other than that, the federal government says we'll accept any state's definition of marriage. So that's the first thing. Second thing. <laughs> yeah, wait, before, before you go on, I, I got to say, I mean, this is so outrageous when you think about it. 
they accepted polygamy out of that. Okay, so that's one thing. That's great, I guess. But how about um, marriage between siblings? How about marriage between uh, a mother and a son? How about marriage between humans and animals or humans and inanimate objects? And unless you think that I'm being outrageous, there are people who've tried to do these things. There are people in California who've done marriage ceremonies between themselves and the trees or themselves and the ocean. And so if California were to say it's legal to be married to a tree, that would mean that Texas or Oklahoma has to accept that marriage, that some human being is now married to a tree. Or at least the federal government has to accept it. And that's, yeah, it's it's terrible in in having that effect. But also, Mark, just from a just from a process or you know federalism governance perspective isn't this just abdication of your responsibility as you know you are the federal government it's your responsibility to define what marriage is for the purposes of federal law so for the purposes of IRS law or federal employment benefits like don't just say well it means whatever someone else says it means that's I think that's the same thing as saying it marriage doesn't matter. If anyone can define it however they want, then isn't that the same as saying marriage doesn't matter? Yeah, for sure. And this is part of the modus operandi of the radical left in America, the cultural Marxist, which is to erase all definitions. And so, again, to go back to the more outrageous examples, now you if California recognizes that a man can marry a tree now that tree is treated as a spouse for purposes of treatment under the irs code it makes absolutely no sense it's outrageous it's going to be very confusing but this is now what the federal government has said right okay so that's the first thing the second thing it does is even more egregious and you already alluded to it it's requiring every state to accept other states definition of marriage and you know, at first, maybe this doesn't sound like a big deal, but for purposes of federalism, you know, Mark, for you and I who um, swim in the waters of federalism and, you know, our, our work is all about preserving the federal system that our founding fathers so thoughtfully created. Well, this defies one of the key principles of our federal system, which is that the states ret retain equal sovereignty over their sphere of policymaking. So with the exception of the powers that are granted to the federal government and, you know, with the exception of the things that states are forbidden to do, the states are their own sovereign government. So for Congress to tell the states, hey, you have to recognize what this state is doing for purposes of your state's law and public policy. It's really outrageous, isn't it? It is really outrageous. And it crosses over to an area of law I'm passionate about, which is Second Amendment law. And you know, under, under Second Amendment law right now, various states have various permitting schemes for owning and carrying firearms, right? There are 25 states that are what we call constitutional carry states, no permits are required. And then there's a very complicated schema between the states of reciprocity so I I, have, I live in a, con, a constitutional carry state, but I also have a permit here in Texas. Certain states recognize that permit. If they're going to be forced to recognize 
marriage all across the country, then why can't I simply carry my gun in all 50 states if I have a Texas-based permit? So this is a messy scheme where Congress is throwing itself in the middle of everything and saying what laws must be recognized between states. I think that's a pretty dangerous road to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about two the first two things that the the act would do if it is in fact signed into law. Um, so again, it's going back to the House with the amendment that the Senate put on it. And then if the House passes it as we presume it will, then it will go to President Biden for final signature. Um, so the third thing, and Mark, I know this is the one that um, most conservatives are the most concerned about, and that is it actually creates a cause of action for people to sue individuals or organizations acting under color of state law who do not accept a state-sanctioned marriage or who in some way violate the principles being set down um, by this law that marriage is whatever any state says it is. So I want to I want to stop and ask you to help break this down for our listeners. Um, creates a cause of action. That means it allows people to sue other people, right? It it basically creates a lawsuit. Can you explain a little bit about what it means for someone to be acting under color of state law or give examples of that? Yeah, I mean, so I just I want to start by saying what this does is it creates a cottage industry for liberal lawyers and liberal special interest groups to go out and and start to file federal lawsuits against organizations and individuals. And we're going to see I'm going to predict not tens, not hundreds, but thousands of these lawsuits filed all across the country. Primarily, they're going to be filed in very conservative states. So don't be surprised if you live in Oklahoma or Iowa or Kansas or Texas or some conservative Midwestern state to see these lawsuits start popping up all over your state. And what they're gonna do is, if you're acting according to your own state's laws in doing what you're doing, that's acting under color of state law. In other words, you are following the law in your own state. You're still going to be subject to litigation because the law in somebody else's state says something different and your state is required to accept that. I mean, I, yeah. I think this is really outrageous because the truth is, Rita, you can't even know what the laws in somebody else's state say. You mm -hmm. can't know when you're dealing with somebody who came from New York, who is acting under color of New York law or is acting, they believe, according to New York law. You're supposed to honor that, but you can't know because you're acting according to your own state's laws. Again, this is outrageous. It's going to hit a lot of people, a lot of businesses and a lot of organizations. Yeah. And I, I will add here that in addition to creating a private cause of action for individuals or organizations to sue people that they think are violating, you know, their their marriage that is recognized by some other state, it also gives the attorney general enforcement power. So you can also have the government coming in and and suing, you know, nonprofit organizations, individuals, whoever they think is violating these principles. And Mark, a lot of people say that the primary effect of this so-called Respect for Marriage Act is to threaten religious liberty for those people. And 
Again, this amendment was added to purportedly protect religious freedom. It might have given some people a false sense of security because rather than adding actual concrete protections into this law, the new section that supposedly protects religious freedom, all it does is to say that those people who sincerely held religious beliefs are infringed can invoke the protections that they already have under the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which doesn't help most people in most cases. So it, it, it actually adds no protection. It just says, if, you're, if you think your rights are violated by something that happens under this law, you can go to court and claim that your First Amendment rights are violated. So you as an individual or a nonprofit organization have to go to court and spend years in litigation and, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to vindicate your rights. That doesn't seem like any protection. Well, I mean, it it is some protection in the sense that I think it provides protection, <laughs> quote unquote, for weak need Republicans who wanted to vote for this, who were blowing with the social wind, the, the 12 in the Senate, the 47 in the House of Representatives, it gave them cover so they can say, hey, we got a religious liberties amendment. Most people don't know what that means or not, but it allows them to vote for this and not worry about the fact that they just voted for something horrible. They'll use this as cover. That's who gets the protection. Yeah, Mark, that's just despicable. And so just to, to bring this home and um, make it really concrete for people, think about social service organizations, like in particular, you know, based on real life experience, adoption agencies, foster placement agencies that serve their communities in accordance with their religious belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. This proposed, you know, the amendment to this bill does nothing to help them. Not, I mean, they will be the targets under this bill. It is, it is virtually guaranteed. Um, the other thing that the amendment did was to add a new section that attempts to address concerns about the tax-exempt status of nonprofits who hold to traditional beliefs about marriage. But once again, the amendment does not substantively remedy that problem. And here's why. When the IRS determines whether an organization is charitable under the Internal Revenue Code, it looks to whether the entity's conduct is contrary to public policy or violates a national policy. So the Respect for Marriage Act is that policy that will now be violated by these organizations. And the IRS could potentially conclude that these nonprofits are not charitable because their conduct is violating public policy. And the amendment that, you know, we're being told protects religious liberty doesn't prevent that. Oh, that's okay because I trust the IRS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. I mean, this is the, the IRS has already been weaponized against the American people, specifically against conservatives. I have personal experience with this. The IRS used to target the Tea Party movement. We now know that they've hired or are hiring 87,000 new agents is their plan. Hopefully the Republicans stop that. Those will be used to target these kinds of institutions. 
One of the most specific examples I can give you, and, and these types of litigations have already taken place, is they're trying to stop Catholic adoption agencies, which are some of the most successful adoption agencies in the United States of America, from operating unless they agree to place children with same-sex couples contrary to their religious teachings. And this is outrageous. They've done it. They don't care about the children. The children are the ones who are going to get pu punished. They're the ones who are not going to find families that they're going to have trouble finding families for. But it's not about kids. It's not about <laughs> marriage. This is about punishing conservatives and about taking away religious liberty. That's right. So we've talked through the amendment. We've talked about what the bill actually does. We've talked about why it's problematic. So the last thing I want to go over, Mark, is the claim that we will hear everybody saying is that what's the big deal? All this does is codify the Supreme Court's Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015, which, if you recall, ruled that same-sex couples have a fundamental right to marry under the 14th Amendment. And um, so, you know, this is why the, the, the Supreme Court recently overturned Roe versus Wade, right? So we, that is probably what motivated this bill and made it so urgent to the left is that they saw the Supreme Court overturn, overturn Roe and they're terrified that, oh, you know, what about these other precedents where the Supreme Court announces that there's a constitutional right that the Constitution doesn't actually mention? So they want the federal federal government through Congress now to codify these rights. So this is problematic in and of itself, right? Because the Supreme Court was overreaching to announce this new right. So do we really want the Congress now codifying that right? Isn't that a problem? Uh, I think it's a gross overreach of Congress. Congress shouldn't be creating rights. Rights as the founders understood them were things that were inalienable, granted to us by our creator. And so the right to marry, is between a man and a woman granted to us by our creator, right? The right to free speech, the right to freedom of religion. All these rights were granted to us. They are inalienable. They didn't, they weren't given to us by government. And so this is not the business of government to quote unquote, create new rights. And in fact, what they're doing here, it's not about rights. What they're doing is they're infringing on religious liberties. And I think that was the goal, but that that is definitely the urgency. Clarence Thomas spoke in his written opinion uh, in the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision that maybe we needed to revisit things like Obergfell. Now to say that they were going to do that, I don't think there was any chance they were going to do that. And there were concurring opinions written that said this in no way means they're going to reconsider cases like that, but that's definitely the motivation for doing this right now. Yeah. And so that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Mark. It, is it realistic to think that the current court could overturn, overturn Obergefell? Or, or are you saying you don't think there's any chance of that happening? No, I think with the current composition of the court, there's absolutely no chance of that happening. Like I said, I mean, it was written in some of the concurring opinions and 
that they wanted it to be very clear, people who were concurring with the majority, that they had no intent of revisiting cases like Oberg, uh, Obergfell, and there were other cases that they mentioned specifically, but they were taking those off the table and they wanted to be very clear about that. So I would say right now there would be zero chance of those cases being reviewed. Yeah. And then, you know, the final thing on this point is don't believe anyone who tells you that all this law does is to codify the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell because this law creates a cause of action against people of faith who adhere to the age-old understanding of marriage. So that's going far beyond the Obergefell decision and um, as a person of faith, you, you should be very concerned about this. Mark? Yeah, you know, I, I would close with this, which is that um, in regard to what you just said, that it's a very bad thing. It is a direct attack on our faith. And it's not the last one that we're going to see. I mean, it is the intent of the left, the radical left, the Marxist left in America to drive religion from the public square. It's always been this way. Anytime you have totalitarianism, statism, dictatorship, they're trying to drive religion from the public square. They're trying to get rid of religion. Most of the people who have this position are atheists, they're secular humanists, they're materialists. They don't want religion as part of our society. So they're gonna continue to chew at religion through these kinds of statutory attacks and if they had their way through Supreme Court attacks. Yeah. Well, I noted in one of the articles I read on the Washington Post, it quotes Chuck Schumer as saying, a decade ago, it would have strained all of our imaginations to envision both sides talking about protecting the rights of same-sex married couples. And it just struck me, not all change is good, because what we're talking about here isn't really about protecting the rights of same-sex sex married couples. It's about suing and harassing and oppressing people whose beliefs, whose fundamental beliefs about things as sacred as marriage don't change with the winds of time. Any final comments on that, Mark? Yeah, I agree with Schumer is that 10 years ago, this was unimaginable. And that's why when I say things like, you know, people marrying trees and people marrying animals and mothers marrying their sons. And those things may sound outrageous right now. Generally, almost anything that sounds outrageous right now is going to be mainstream policy for the left in 10 years. And a lot of people on the right are going along with it. And I also, even though this is a faith program, I think it's important that we make the non-religious societal cultural argument against gay marriage. It's to me, it's I'm not trying to deprive anybody of anything Marriage actually has a purpose in a functioning society. The purpose of marriage is a male and a female coming together to propagate the species. That's the point of marriage. Marriage is designed to propagate the species. It is a fundamental biological imperative. And when you say that that's not the case, that anything can be a marriage, if a state defines it as a marriage, then you undermine a core structure of a civil society, of a stable society, uh, and of a growing society. Mm, that's right. Mark, we're out of time for today. Thank you for being with me and discussing this difficult topic. Thanks for having me. And I would just encourage everybody at this point, 
Pray for our nation because we need it. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.